Welcome back to The Fighting Life. I'm James, that's Chris. Today we're talking about a legend of boxing. We're talking about gentleman Jim Corbett. Corbett's often referred to as the father of modern boxing. He's a thinking fighter who utilised speed and technique over brute force. He's also the only man to ever beat John L. Sullivan, hence the man who beat the man. He reached the pinnacle of the sport, as well as becoming a star of the stage and also dealt with his own personal tragedies. Chris, what can you tell us about Corbett? Thanks, James. Um, Indulge me a little at the start, and let me take you back to San Francisco in the 1880s, to a district called the Barbary Coast. It's named for the region of North Africa, where pirates ruled the seas. It's a red-light district, where dope fiends languish in opium dens, prostitutes loiter in darkened doorways, and sailors come looking for a good time after months at sea, and if they can't find that, they'll look for a fight. It's the kind of place you don't want to walk alone at night, where, if you head down the wrong alley, you're liable to get bashed and robbed, or worse. In one of the roughest bars walks a tall, slim guy wearing white gloves, a collared shirt, with his hair slicked up and back. He looks like he just came from working in a bank. It looks like he might get himself in trouble, but trouble's exactly what he's looking for. The stranger challenges the toughest guy in the saloon to a fight, The local brawler can't lay a finger on the newcomer, who ducks, slips and dances away from every blow. Then, as the fight wears on, the stranger lands so many stiff left hands, the brawler is begging for the right. The tall, slim guy who delivers a beatdown? That's Jim Corbett. He's a flashy dresser who likes to get attention. He's confident to the point of arrogance. But most of all, he's a brilliant boxer, with footwork and ring craft to make the most dangerous of fighters look foolish. <laughs> That's lovely. Tell us a little bit about Corbett's early life. Where, where did he come from? Okay, a little less colour, a little more facts, yeah? <laughs> okay. Corbett was born in 1866. He, he was one of ten kids born to Irish Catholic immigrants. His dad owned a stable. They weren't... They weren't poor, but with 10 kids in the family, I guess things were always tight. The hopes for Corbett was that he'd be raised to be a Catholic priest, like a lot of Catholic families in that time, not so much nowadays. That never looked likely. And an early biographer, uh, Richard Fox, who was a publisher mentioned in our last podcast, he said of Corbett that his willingness to thump and be thumped was the principal characteristic of his early years. So by the time that he was 12, he was expelled from his first school he got in a fight with a kid called Fatty Carney. Fatty was bigger from the big playground and he went across and, and got in a scuffle with him and then they met after school and had a fight on a on a vacant lot. And Corbett said after that fight, he said, he said he learned a lesson that lasted all his life, that the size of a man does not count and by using his head and his feet, he could beat a man much stronger than himself. Right. So he learned a lesson early. He learned that lesson early. He didn't learn a lesson about not fighting. At his next school, he also got expelled the next year where he was a bit of a troublemaker. He actually ended up, um, he refused to take the cane from a brother and he barged out of the school and headbutted a brother who was trying to stop him. So the school was over at 15. He ended up working in a bank and um, that's where he started to adopt the persona of the gentleman that he'd been known for in the fight game. So seeing rich people all the time in the bank, he sort of wanted to emulate them a bit more. Yeah, he said, At the bank I had my first look at the good life, the high silk hats, the gold watch chains, 
the refinement that comes with money. I swore that someday those things would be mine, though at the time I had no idea how I'd get them. So where did he re- refine his, his boxing technique? Is it on the streets? Is it in a gym? He was always sparring in the stables that his father owned with his brothers and with other people in the area. And then he had a friend who took him to fight people in Wednesday night fights in firehouses where you know people would come and have sparring and also in blacksmith shops on a Friday night he'd be there sparring. And then he looked for tougher competition in the Barbary Coast. But he actually ended up joining the Olympic Club. It's the oldest, club, oldest athletic club in America, so it had a bit of prestige there. And that was where his talent was recognised pretty quickly by a, a bloke they called Walter Watson, who was from England. He was called Professor Walter Watson. That's what they call their boxing coaches. And he really started to show Corbett some tricks of the game. Coming into that club, the best boxers in the world, if they were coming to the, the West Coast... They would be in there doing exhibitions and Corbett, he's sparring people like Jack Dempsey, not the heavyweight, the middleweight that Jack Dempsey took his name from. He was known as the non-prail or unmatched and he studied his feints, he learnt from him. So he got a really good education and he just soaks it up, soaks up everything he can about boxing. He went to all the fights that he could go to. He went and saw a young John L. Sullivan fighting Paddy Ryan, not the world championship fight, but another fight he had with him. He remembers watching that fight at around the age of 18, and he said even then he thought he could beat Sullivan. He thought he, wow. he thought he could outbox him. He thought he could find the right strategy to defeat the champ. So what kind of style did he develop there? Well, going back to one of the defining things is his footwork, and he even talks again, he, he talks more about with Fatty Carney. He realised then very early that it, the aim should be to hit and don't get hit, contrasting to Sullivan, who was the champ. Sullivan was very much hit and keep hitting so it was almost instinct gave him a different style straight away. He was going to move away from punches. And, and that was seen as by some probably as unmanly in a way, but he just realised it was sensible yeah. not to try and stand in front of your opponent and trade punches. An early biographer said, In footwork, Corbett had absolutely no equal. He was in and out, rounded about like a will-o'-the-wisp and was seemingly no more susceptible to fatigue than a rubber ball. And he's really smart. He sort of thinks about his opponent. I know this sounds like something every boxer should do, but some boxers are fixed in a style. He finds chinks in their armour. So he just brought a level of sophistication to the whole game right from very early in the piece. So in San Francisco at that time, there's a great fighter called Joe Choinsky, a Jewish-American fighter, one of the great first light heavyweights of the era. Um, Huge power in both hands, and he's a guy who will later fight the future heavyweight champion Jack Johnson and beat Jack Johnson. Um, yeah, like you say, Choinsky is he's a tough guy. He worked as a blacksmith for two years, he right. says. He built his strength, swinging a 20-pound sledge for 10 hours a day for two years. And then he, he had a job as a candy puller. I, I haven't been able to find exactly what a candy puller did, but part of the thing working in a candy factory is he would be rolling 300-pound barrels of sugar upstairs from the basement. So he is a strong guy yeah. who, can, who has stam, stamina for days. So he crossed paths with um, Corbett. How does that go? Yeah, well, they had an old rivalry. Corbett had knocked him out in a in the sand hills outside San Francisco when they had a beef and he had punched his brother. So there was a lot of bad blood between them. Yep. Corbett didn't want to Corbett didn't want to fight him as a professional though. Right. So there was a um it was kind of more prestigious at the time to be an amateur. There was yeah. a lot more class and if you were fighting for money you were kind of seen as 
lower class, right? Yeah, it was it was it was dirty. It was dirty yeah. money. Even though you know rich men would go and watch it, they didn't think much of the men that they were betting on. Right. So, and he had a job in a bank. You know, he was moving up in the world after his troubled youth. His dad was dead set against him fighting, so he was never going to have a pro fight with Choinsky. Then it got talked up in the press, the rivalry between the two. You know, you've got this tough fighter, Joe Choinsky, and they called him the California Sparrer, was how Corbett was often referred to. You know, he's just yeah. doing sparring. So there was kind of this rivalry where they're talking about who's the better fighter. Corbett said, oh, he can't box. I'd beat him anyway. Choinsky says, I could knock him out. He's not a fighter. He's not tough. And the clubs, they're at rival clubs. There was the whole Jew v. Gentile thing, class right. thing. So, yeah, they end up... A fight sort of comes about. It's it's been talked about in the press, talked up, and then it becomes inevitable. These two are going to face each other in the ring. So where do they fight? The fight's out of town because they're sort of avoiding the cops. So it's in Marin County. They there's cops watching the house where Corbett's doing his training. So he has to sneak out of the back fence, get in a carriage, and he's driven, hiding under blankets, driven to a barn where they're having the fight. Word has got out that the fight is there. There's hundreds of people turn up. Their guns all have to be handed in because they don't want anyone to shoot him when things get ugly. And him and Chuinsky get it on, start throwing punches. Corbett manages to break his hand in the four rounds they get in before the sheriff turns up and stops the whole fight, says, sorry, fellas, you can't have this, and the fight is called off. It's, it's called a no contest. Right. Six days later, they you know find a new venue, which is a barge in the middle of the Sacramento River. But Corbett's got a broken hand, doesn't he? <laughs> Corbett, yeah. But the, yeah, there's money on the fight. They want okay. a winner. That doesn't really matter. So the fight continues. And even with the, with the broken hand, that comes into it because they're meant to bring their gloves to the fight. And Choinsky's trainer throws his gloves off the boat into the water so Choinsky doesn't have any gloves because he wants to have a bare-knuckle fight, uh, figuring it will be to Choinsky's advantage because Corbett's broken a hand. Yeah. But what ends up happening is they get gloves from the crowd a pair of driving gloves that Choinsky wears, and then they continue to have the fight in those. Corbett doesn't want to go bare knuckle. He wants to protect his hands. So he says, I'll wear gloves. You wear your driving gloves. Let's do this. So not regulation driving gloves. <laughs> yeah, no inspection. Just put them on and start punching. Right. And what happens, what unfolds there is called more brutal than a bare knuckle battle. So what made it such a, uh, a barn burner of a fight? Essentially, it's Corbett was an awesome boxer, which has kind of been established, yeah. and Choinsky was too tough for his own good. To fast forward to the end of the fight, Chwinski says, I just couldn't touch him. Wow. But he keps coming, keeps pushing forward. And Corbett is moving around, dancing, just peppering Chwinski with his left hand. He's only got a left. Then he breaks his left hand too on Chwinski's head. And Chwinski's getting some punches in. And he's got these gloves, driving gloves, with seams up the side that are cutting open Corbett, scratching his face, slashing. So he's cut up as well. And this is where he says he developed the left hook. Left hooks have been thrown before, but his way of throwing a long left hook would just hit him with the top two knuckles. So it's like a European hook. Yeah. Exactly. And Chwinski just kept getting hit by it. In the 14th round, Corbett accidentally or throws a full left jab yeah. and just feels searing pain, almost vomits, collapses. Chwinski starts to lay it on him in a big way, putting in the big hits. At the side of the ring... Corbett's brothers are watching. One of them can't watch anymore, turns away. So the other brother punches Corbett's brother in the face. So there's two Corbett's fighting outside the ring. Inside the ring... It's like a WWE Exactly. Twitsky's nose is busted up. He can't breathe. He's spitting blood everywhere. And Corbett talks about slipping in the blood, slipping in the blood and the sweat. In the 27th round, Twitsky's fading. That's when Corbett puts it all... He 
sorry, to talk to his ringmanship. He pretends that he's going to throw his right hand, which is, you know, pretty classic, a right feint. But he hasn't been able to use his right hand the whole fight. So what he does, he has the presence of mind to say to his cornerman, yell at me, it's time to unleash the right. It's time to throw your right, Jim. So his cornerman screamed out, Jim, let the right go, throw the right. Corbett shapes up for a big right hand. He has no intention of throwing. Choinsky moves away from it. Bang, crashes in with the left. Drops Choinsky, it's over. Left hand's finished. Choinsky's finished, all done. You know, in the 27th round, after three-minute rounds. So an hour and a half of fighting. Jeez. That's when he's got the presence of the mind. Under 40-degree heat on a barge in Benicia. You know, it's crazy stuff. <laughs> the description of Choinsky at the end is terrible. They say his team carried from the ring. His distorted and swollen face seemed to be bleeding at every pore. He's just a mess. Him and Corbett shake hands. They even have a fundraiser together later because they're not making much money out of this fight. um, Yeah, astounding stuff. Wow. What a bloodbath. Well, it's still talked about 30, 40 years later in San Francisco. It's like um, Woodstock. All of a sudden, everybody was on this barge. They all witnessed it. Everyone wants to say they saw the fight when, you know, there was a few hundred there. That fight, it's so brutal, and Corbett with his shattered hand, at the end of it, he just says, that's it for me. I'm not fighting again. Much the relief of his family, who hates him in the professional game. Hates him being in the paper for getting him punch-ups, you know? They're worried about him losing his job and all that sort of stuff. But he does fight again. (laughs) Yeah, he can't keep away. He fights the great Australian fighter of the year, Peter Jackson. So Peter Jackson is a black heavyweight from Australia. He was the Australian champion. He was a um, Commonwealth champion. He, was the, he had the coloured heavyweight belt as well at the time. And he was a guy who John L. Sullivan wouldn't fight because of the colour of his skin. Those two finally meet. Yeah. Um, so how, did, how, how does this go? It's pretty amazing because let's be honest, we've talked about this. He should have been world champion. Yeah. If Peter Jackson gets to fight at his prime against John L. Sullivan, he cleans him up. I agree. Sullivan refuses to, and that's where Corbett sees an opportunity. He... he lives and breeds boxing at this stage and he's seen peter jackson fight a couple of times two three times and he thinks he, he thinks he's got his measure again audacious of him but he comes up with a plan he goes to the california athletic club directors meeting and he says they can raise ten thousand dollars purse for a fight between him and jackson it's a lot of money yeah but um and he, his idea is that anyone who wants to see the fight has to pay to join the club so he, he takes that idea to the directors and they agree and they put on this fight, which becomes, you know, the Choinsky fight got a lot of press in the lead-up. You know, it's this local beef they're building up. This fight is the hottest ticket in town. Everybody wants to be at the Peter Jackson. He's fighting Peter a Jack- champion. The Jackson-Corbett yeah. fight. And, and what happens when they clash? It's a, it's a close fight. I think that's the impressive thing. You know, Corbett does really well. And for a young fighter it's surprising how well he performs there's contention over who wins and who loses there's no no clear which i guess says there's no clear-cut winner there's no one saying that anybody got smashed it went on a long time didn't that well that's what we'll get to so the first rounds were close so that's probably the best way to put it peter jackson's a bit handicapped by an ankle injury he had he fell out of a carriage some weeks before the fight and as the fight goes on that gets worse they say by well, I may as well read it. In the 51st round, both men were completely used up and Jackson appeared to limp on the leg he sprained when thrown out of the chase. Corbett's hand was swelled to twice their natural size. Now I'm sceptical about that, twice their natural size, so <laughs> we could take that with a grain of salt. But what's generally agreed, but towards the end of the fight, nothing is happening. And then it says, 
during the last 10 rounds, literally nothing has been done and the spectators are getting impatient. So they're just exhausted. They neither has the strength to, to punch the other man out. So they're just circling the ring, looking at each other, unable to lift their hands. And they have been fighting for, by the end, 180 minutes. Wow. So you can appreciate that. It's a marathon. The, the interesting thing is Corbett insists he was ripped off, which is very Corbett-like. To his credit, he does say that Peter Jackson is the greatest fighter he ever fought. Wow. Um, and yeah, we were only left to wonder what would have happened if he ever, he ever got to fight Sullivan. So he fights to a draw and Sullivan just can't ignore him anymore, can he? Yeah, Sullivan can't ignore him. Mind you, there's two things this fight does for him. It also gets him the attention of this William A. Brady, who's a theatrical manager and he sees Corbett as someone who's going places that he can you know, exploit. No, not exploit's the wrong word. He can Promote. work with him to, yeah. sell, to make a lot of money. And he takes control. And what, what they do to build a bit of hype, what he, what he comes up with to build a bit of hype is, well, remember when Sullivan did his no, what, knocking out tour? Knocking out tour. So was, take on all comers, uh, coast to coast. Yeah, exactly. So they thought, well, here's the next challenger for Sullivan. We'll, we'll put out some ads and we'll do the same thing. But slight problem there. You know, Sullivan is, well, you describe him when he's knocking people so, out. John L. Sullivan's one of the toughest blokes ever. <laughs> yeah. um, built with granite. No one can really stand toe-to-toe with John L. Sullivan. Exactly. Yeah. See, bit of a difference with Jim Corbett. He's a dancer. He's yeah. got delicate hands. He's got, you know, fingers like a penist. Yeah. Like a, <laughs> that's not the best word to use. But yeah, he, he, and he's got delicate hands. So they're doing this stunt. We'll knock anyone out in four rounds. And he comes up against this hard man from Philadelphia. And they try to avoid fighting him. He turns up at, you know, at show after show. Eventually they can't ignore Mike Monaghan. And Corbett knows, well, he has to put him out. Unfortunately, the delicate hands of Corbett don't survive the power of the punch, and he breaks his knuckles. So unlike Sullivan, where they're knocking out everyone, they actually get a stooge to stand in. One of his sparring partners, Connie McVeigh, goes from town to town ahead of the Corbett fights. He's got a ring in. Yeah, they got a ring in. So it's Connie McVeigh, and he'll go to town a bit before they know that Corbett's heading there, and he'll put an ad in the paper saying, you know, I'm John Olson of Milwaukee, I'm, or I'm the Walla Walla Giant of Butte City, or you know, I'm, you know, he put on a Mexican name for Los Angeles, and he'll be in the town, and, and then Corbett comes to the town and says, well, who's this man who's put my name in the paper? I'll prove what a hero I am and knock him out in four rounds. And naturally he does. So that, that's just something to, the, I guess, the showmanship that Corbett adopts, but also the, uh, the sneakiness sometimes. Wow. So when he does finally meet John L. Sullivan... It's a watershed moment in boxing. Um, Sullivan's been the champ for 10 years. He's also a superstar of the sport. And they meet in 1892, and Corbett gets the better of him. Sullivan, he's the older man, he's a bit slower, and Corbett is a mover, he's defensive, and in round 21, he knocks him out with a right hand. Yes, it's a pretty resounding victory. He destroys Sullivan, and there's no doubt to his claim for the title. I thought what was really interesting was what Corbett said after the fight, no, years after, but his reaction, his reaction to the win. He writes about it in his book. So the roar of the crowd went on. He writes about it in his book called The Roar of the Crowd. <laughs> so the roar of the crowd went on. I should have felt proud and dazed, but the only thing I could think of right after the knockout was Sullivan lying there on the floor. I was actually disgusted with the crowd, and it left a lasting impression on me. 
It struck me as sad to see all those thousands who had given him such a wonderful ovation when he entered the ring, turning it to me now that he was down and out. Wow, so he's a very different man to Johnny O'Sullivan. Yeah, he's a lot more of a thinker, a lot more reflective. He does go on to say that he admits he caught, you know, this was not the same Sullivan he saw and admired back in San Francisco all those years ago when he was, you know, 26 years old. He says, you know, he caught him when he was slipping. And he says that goes for all champions down the line. And then he goes on. As I got Sullivan when he was slipping, so Jeffries got Fitzsimmons, Johnson defeated Jeffries, and Dempsey Willard. He writes, like the pitcher that goes too often to the well, the champ will go once too often to the ring and be broken in the end. So now that he's the heavyweight champion of the world, is he is he quick to, to fight again, defend his belt? He's, he's not in a hurry to fight at all. He doesn't do a lot of fighting. This is where his relationship with the manager, William A. Brady, comes in. Before the fights even happened, he, William A. Brady's commissioned a play called Gentleman Jack for him to star in that shows him becoming champion of the world. Jeez. And it really does a thing of selling that whole gentleman image because people can almost conflate the two characters. That whole reputation of Gentleman Jim is spread through this play that shows him beating... First, he's got a character called Charlie Twitchell, which is based on Charlie Mitchell. Yeah. And then they have another character that's more based on John L. Sullivan. So for the next 17 months, instead of fighting, he's touring around and doing this play that ends with a big fight, which is a huge hit. He's making lots of money. People love it. Tours it to England, even there. Not such a hit, but the fact that it's said to be an amazing production, the realism of the fight, because Corbett's obviously sparring someone, going pretty hard. What they do in England to get the crowd, they have a full-size ring on stage and... William A. Brady goes to the local pubs and sporting clubs and asks people if they want to see Corbett fight. And come the fight scene in the play, he files them all in. So all these drunks and stuff come into the play and get up on the stage and are there cheering for Corbett to fight, thinking it's a genuine fight. (laughs) The reports are like, oh, those those were amazing extras. How did he do it? How (laughs) How did he get these guys to perform so well? But that's the closest Corbett gets to a fight for about 17 months. And then he takes on Charlie Mitchell who's a fighter well past his best. He's more interested in making money. It's interesting even in that play, I think, Gentleman Jim, or Gentleman Jack in the play, is presented as a college graduate, an Ivy League graduate. And you see all these reports decades later, even a century later, on the International Boxing Hall of Fame. It says that Gentleman Jim Corbett went to college. This is a kid that finished school at 15, got kicked out of school because he was getting in fights. So it really blurs the lines of you know, reality. Build a myth. Yeah, they, it's total myth-making. It's, it's, he's like a real example of PR in action. Like they've never done it on a level like this. Right. <laughs> William, and William A. Brady does not miss an opportunity. The English tour is not a raging success, doesn't make a lot of money. He comes back from it and puts up banners that shows Corbett meeting, meeting the king, meeting the prime minister, meeting all these people. Never met them at all, but just to drum up more support for the returning champ. So he's, he's a guy that does not miss a trick, this Great William Brady, and really builds the Corbett myth a lot. Wow. So as Corbett's making his name for himself as an actor, there's a, there's a boxer making a name for himself in Australia, in New Zealand, in England. It's Bob Fitzsimmons, the first three-division champion of the world. So he, he calls Corbett out. How does Corbett respond? Corbett is not in a rush to take on Fitzsimmons. You know, you, you know, the boat's got dynamite in both hands, can just 
What, what is Teddy Atlas called? The eraser. He's got an eraser in both fists. So he's not really a guy you want to fight in a hurry. But also, he's happy making money. The thing is, there is so much talk about Fitzsimmons' rise that it becomes, he can't ignore it. Um, there, there's a big risk with Fitz. And Corbett's making really good money. But it, it's hard to make money from your theatre engagements or maintain respect within your theatre engagements when come the final act, when you've got to do a sparring session with some nobody or another actor, you've got people in the cheap seats yelling, fight fits, you soft, you know. <laughs> I was about to say the wrong thing. There are people up in the cheap seats, you know, saying, fight fits, you coward, you've got a yellow streak, fight fits. So the whole fits phenomenon, hmm. it cannot be ignored and they have to have a fight. He does retire at one stage, but even even with that, you know, people know he's the champ who should be fighting Fitz. It doesn't matter if he's handed the belt over. And Fitz and him don't get on, do they? These are two guys that are very different people, very different personalities, and they have a couple of run-ins outside of the ring. Yeah, but- that's right. Yeah, no, you're right. Even before, you know, there's to- they're trying to arrange a fight, and the fight gets put off at various times because of locations and, and contractual disputes and... Yeah, Fitz has to go to court. There's reasons they can't have a fight. But yeah, they run into each other at this Philadelphia hotel, Greens Hotel. And Corbett, is, it's funny because we talk about Gentleman Jim Corbett. He, was not, he had a mean streak. Like he had a nasty streak. And that's where I talk about this PR, this idea that he was Gentleman Jim. A lot of that you've got to thank Gentleman Jack, the stage right. show. So Corbett sees Fitzsimmons at this Greens Hotel signing the register. He goes up to him and says, oh, you can't, you know, Fitz, you can't just sign with an X. You can't sign your name. My brother write your name for you, and then he grabs Fitz's nose and sort of tweaks it, and they end up in a scuffle. His brother comes in, you know, punches Fitz. His manager William A. Brady picks up a chair and's about to hit Fitz. Fitz picks up a decanter, throws it across the room, tries wow. to brain someone. In one report, Corbett ends up spitting on Fitz. Corbett does not have a good reputation mm. amongst, I guess, the fight crowd as being a gentleman. The theatre goers might have gone for it and the wider community, but he's got a bit of a nasty streak there. And part of that also is his ring psychology. He likes to have an edge on someone before they even get in the ring. So Sullivan, we talked about the fight earlier, but Sullivan, he always just showed him no respect. But for him, it's just part of the fight game. So it's hard to know how much that is put on. Yeah, I've heard he was always playing psychological games with his opponents, like things that he would always make the opponent walk in the ring before he would... He always had these little tricks. And yeah, well, even with so Peter Jackson. We walked to the ring with Peter Jackson because they agreed they'd go in at the same time because they couldn't agree who'd go first. Right. And he pretended to duck under, duck back out, watch Peter Jackson get in, and then he got in the ring. You know, that kind Just of that thing. little edge. And even with Fitz, there were, I heard there was a time when Fitz tried to shake his hand in the street as well. Yeah. And he said, I won't shake your hand, I only shake your hand in the ring. Yeah, which um, might, yeah, I don't think in hindsight he made the right move there. I don't think getting Fitz angry <laughs> helped him in the end. So they, they finally do meet in the ring, 1897, St. Patrick's Day, Carson City, Nevada. Bob Fitzsimmons, the smaller man, the older man, gets the better of Gentleman Jim Corbett. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating fight that people are coming from you know, all over the country to see it. And, and the interesting thing as well, it's, it's being filmed. It's the first heavyweight championship fight that's been filmed. So it's a huge, huge deal there. And in a way, I guess Corbett's failure is, is caught for, for the world to see. An interesting account comes from Thomas T. Williams. He's writing in Bob Fitzsimmons' book, Physical Culture and Self-Defense. 
and he describes them through their faces. You know, like I guess yeah, talking about a visual medium, they had it on film. The film that did it does not capture these expressions. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not the greatest footage. But he says of he says of Fitzsimmons. I saw a face that will haunt me until time has effaced it from my memory. It was a mixture of pathos and tragedy. There was no savagery in it, but some intelligence. There was a leer and a grin and a look of patient suffering and dogged courage. It was the face of a brave man fighting an uphill fight. With lip torn and bleeding, nostrils plugged with coagulated blood, ears torn and swollen, eyes half closed and blinking in the sunlight, with every line and muscle drawn to the angle of suffering, but with all watchful, intent and set. <laughs> Paints a picture, doesn't it? Yeah, so that's Fitzsimmons. It's not a glamorous picture, but the point is he's there. You know, you mm. can't get rid of this guy. He's just sort of determined. And that's where I think Corbett's idea of putting him off by refusing a handshake, you don't face Fitz. Mm. He's a fighter through and through. And then the writer goes on to describe Corbett's face. Corbett's face changed during the fight. The change came at the end of the 10th round when... Much to the surprise of everyone, Fitzsimmons was still in the ring, and Corbett, too wise to go in and finish him, was wondering why the Australian took so much pounding. The high, proud look of confidence that had marked Corbett's appearance from the beginning suddenly gave place to an appearance of exhausted vitality and doubt. He found himself with less energy than he expected, and he could not understand why that bruised and battered piece of flesh in front of him, which bore so little resemblance to humanity, continued to face him. <laughs> Bob Fitzsimmons. Yes, he's just there till the end. And the point the guy makes is that the fight went how, in a way, everybody expected. Corbett would be outboxing him, but if there was one moment, Fitz would get off the punch. And the same writer goes on, I'll stick with him for round 14 when the fight comes to its end. He said, there were a few exchanges, and then I saw what I do not want to see again. I saw Fitzsimmons' left hand go smash into Corbett's stomach, just as though it had gone into butter. And I saw Fitzsimmons' right hand reach the point of Corbett's jaw. Then Corbett sank to his knees in the western corner of the ring, holding onto the ropes for support. His eyes absolutely turned upward until none of the pupil was visible. His face was white. He was not unconscious in the sense of being entirely benumbed, but his limbs refused to respond to the demands made upon them. Time was up. The champion was out. <laughs> so, so how does Corbett take the loss? Like a gentleman? In that moment, he takes it really badly. He totally loses it. And when he comes to, when he's on his feet, counter to his reputation, he comes across the ring in a white-hot rage. He's screaming at Fitz. He's saying, Fitz, you know, you've got to fight me again. He says, if I see you in the street, I'll fight you. To which he says that Fitz says, if you do that, I'll shoot you. Fitz tells the same story, but he says, if you do that, I'll kill you. So Fitz is, you know, yeah. I, I assume with bare hands, Fitz is going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And this fight was being filmed as well. So this is one of the first feature films of all time. Yeah, William A. Brady, his manager, who had such a, an influence over his career and his fame, was the producer of this film that was then seen everywhere with Corbett losing it, you know. And, so that, and he really went dropped in the estimation of the public. But a lot worse than that, like his dad had been at the fight. It was the first Corbett fight he had gone to. He'd always disapproved of his son. Like, he really did not feel good about him fighting. That comes up again and again over... Like even when he wins the title, his dad's kind of hoping that he just retires from the fight game. And... He'd always, we're 100 years on, how much can you know, from clippings of newspapers and the odd letter. 
He'd always struggled with depression, and he, he just went downhill from there. You know, he couldn't run his business anymore. He couldn't run the stable business. So other people had to help out there. And then, of course, it got to as bad as you can imagine. He went and shot his wife and then turned the gun on himself, you know. So Wow. Tragic. You're pretty harrowing. And it's strange as well that like you read about this at the time and it's it's talked about very matter-of-factly, like a telegram report almost, you know, and it doesn't dwell into how it affected Corbett at all. And Corbett doesn't dwell on how it affected him. He's just, he just says if there's one thing I can take out of, you know, what I could do as a champion, it's that I got to take my mother to Ireland, you know, and it, yeah, it doesn't dwell, dwell on that. There's also one report that he's going to have to keep fighting, you know, because he's now got to provide for the rest of the family. So he does keep fighting. Where's his next fight? Who does he fight next? Well, he has a fight against Tom Sharkey, Sailor Tom, who he's fought before. It's, it's funny because <laughs> you read about the controversy around it. This is, and you think, guy, the guy, the guy's mum just, the guy's mum and dad just died. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so funny how this stuff doesn't get dealt with in these old bavers. And I guess that's the time they grew up with. You, you, you just had to. They were tough guys, the tough times. Um, and then he retires after the Sharkey fight, which is a controversial one. He loses because his cornerman jumps in the ring. And he's, you know, he owns a saloon, he goes back to business, but he, he sort of hangs up the gloves and then he sees an opportunity when, you know, his old sparring partner, Jeff, Jim Jeffries, who's managed by William A. Brady, his old manager, is the heavyweight champion of the world. So Jeffries is bigger, younger, stronger fighter than him, doesn't really have much of a chance, does he? Yeah, this is where Corbett surprises again because he's actually been secretly training for a year, getting himself fit, He's he's a very determined man, and when Brady gives him the fight, it's it's almost like a bit of a charity fight. Nobody expects him to win. They don't know he's been secretly training for a year. He is in prime condition, or as good a condition as he can be. And Jeffries doesn't really know what he's in for. And when he gets in that ring, it's almost like the Corbett of old, the Corbett who fought Peter Jackson is back. He's turned back the clock. Exactly. And he's winning the rounds. He's racking up the points. And everyone sees he's going to win. Now, most people, most of Jeffrey's men had him winning in the first 10 rounds. And then Jeffries went to his corner and said, tell them to lay off those bets. After he ends, I'm not going to knock him out in 10 rounds. On the other side of the ring, Corbett is seeing his name up in lights again. He knows he's making a comeback. He's boxing beautifully. Come round 23. Jeffries hits him with a jab and then a hook. And dra- drops him on the ground. Uh, Not that Corbett ever sees those punches coming. <laughs> Corbett's just left to wonder what could be. So, so how does the public respond to this? Is, is he still well-liked? What happens here? Corbett's up and down. His reputation, I, I say now, but I think like 20 years after the fight, says something about short memory of the public. Because after that fight, he's kind of in disdain again because he has a dodgy fight with Kid McCoy where the fights, the results controversial, people think it's a fix. Then that sort of gets forgotten because he fights Jeffries again. Mm. And this fight he gets beaten easy. Well, not easy, but he's done in 10 rounds. He says in that second fight with Jeffries, he had a broken rib from the second round, so he can't move like he used to, and he's just, so he just gets toweled up. But as the years go by, people look at who he fought, how he took on people, and they forget who he avoided. Or It doesn't matter in the memory of the public that he avoided Fitz for two years or three. These people aren't looking back through old papers. Mm. They know he fought Fitz and he had a great fight. He fought Jeffries. He had a great fight. He took on Peter Jackson. Yeah, he's got a good... His resume... Sometimes I look at it and I think it's a very thin resume. <laughs> he's got 11 wins, four losses, three draws. Mm. You look at it 
and you don't think about those fights being dragged out over six years. You look at the names, he took them on. And there's also the fact that the personality he had, he continued to do these monologue tours, he continued to travel, he came to Australia and talked, he came to England. He was very well spoken, entertained crowds. People loved him. When, he, when they actually met him one-on-one, when they met him in a small audience, he got a lot of fans. So that fame only grew and the reputation of Gentleman Jim grew. So I think he's remembered really well in the public's eye for years after he fights. So looking at his life as a whole, what do we make of Jim Corbett? Oh, God, that's it's tough. I, I think I think he was done a disservice with the, the image built by Brady. More than the scientific boxer, he, he, you sort of forget he was tough as nails. You know, this is a guy that fought battles that ran into the hours. So he was, he was tough. He wasn't just fancy. He wasn't just fleet-footed. He was built of stern stuff. And I guess, despite the whole image, uh, Gentleman Jim, that Gentleman Jim persona, the reality is, like, you look at the way he acted with people, he, he, he could be nasty, he's, like, petul- often petulant, you know, like, childish sometimes, you know, the way uh, Hassel fits. And, but then at the same time, you know, you've got a guy who went through hell, suffered greatly, and we, even, I think, as a child, probably. You know, if you've got a father who ends up the way... If you've got parents that end up that way... The childhood was not easy. That's mm. that's my supposition. And all through that, he, he still cared deeply for his family and looked out for them through his life. So, you know, I guess... I think, he, you know, he wasn't the gentleman that he was sold as. You've got to say he was a hell of a fighter and maybe just a flawed human being. <laughs> 